Welcome to a new episode of Technoculture. I am Federica Bristan, and today my guest is Annette Lucknes, Professor of Chemistry Education and Historian of Chemistry at NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Welcome, Annette. Thank you, Federica. Today we talk about collaborative couples in science, that is, men and women who work in science and sometimes are partners or husband and wife or lovers, maybe. So what drew you to consider collaborative couples in science? What was interesting to you about it? As historians, we always want to go beyond the popular anecdotal story uh, to understand or to study couples is a way to understand the dynamics between partners who work together. And uh, and there is this particular uh, dynamics, we believe, uh, when people that work together are also married or, or, or lovers. Are there many collaborative couples? We find them a lot in history or not so much, or maybe we don't know about them yet. I think the more we dig, the more couples we find. Um, we know already a lot, uh, or we have many examples. People have been studying couples since the 90s, and, and we, we always find new couples from different uh, centuries. And also when I studied uh, local history here at NTNU, I, I found many couples. So I think if we look for them, they are there. Is it, uh, I start from like a, a bias, uh, a, a cliche question probably, but is it true that most of the times you find out about a couple because the man was already famous, we didn't know that his wife helped him, for example? Is this how the story goes most of the times? This is uh, uh, maybe how some people started researching couples because they wanted to also look into the, the wife's story and, and maybe make her more visible. But as we dig into these stories, we see that, of course, this is not the whole picture. It's not always like that. There are many cases where women have been less credited than, than their male husbands in, in collaborative work, but it's not always like that. In the volume uh, that I co-edited with uh, Brigitte Van Tigelen uh, in 2012, for example, there was one chapter about uh, Jane Marset, who was um, a 19th century textbook author. Uh, she authored a textbook, actually more than one textbook, but there was one that was particularly popular in chemistry. And in this chapter, those who studied it, our historian colleagues, they found that uh, actually this time it was the husband that was behind the scenes. Uh, but first the book was published uh, anonymously, but after some editions, uh, her name appeared. But when they studied the notebooks of the husband, Alexander Marse, they saw that he had been very much involved in the work. So, so this is a, an example of the contrary. And of course, there are examples of uh, couples where they have uh, helped each other to be visible and, and there are different shares of credit and, and division of work between couples. So our point was to actually always look at the context um, and look at every case differently and not um, put up these uh, general trends. Yes, uh, I would like to ask you what period of time you have considered and if you found a pattern in the collaboration of these couples or each couple is unique, so to speak. 
I would say each couple is unique, but there will always be uh, some general features that you will recognize from other cases. Um, that's for sure. I have been investigating with uh, my colleague Brigitte van Tigelen, a German couple in the 20th century, Ida Nodak and Walter Nodak. She was uh, actually a PhD chemist, chemical engineer who entered um, uh, industry, chemical industry. He was a university trained PhD chemist. At one point they met and uh, decided to take up a, a joint work uh, on, on looking for new elements, new chemical elements. Um, because at that time there was um, the periodic table of chemical elements, uh, which we use today, that is an overview and a system of all the chemical elements we know. It had gaps. So there was a race actually to find uh, the, the ones that still had not been discovered. This was uh, the first joint project of this couple. And they inv both invested a lot of time, but the Ida, the, the woman, she decided actually to invest so much that she left her job in industry to do this full time. Uh, and the beginning was actually to do this uh, literature review. It was necessary to even start to look for these new elements. So uh, for nine months, full time, she went to the library in Berlin to read literature, uh, what other people had researched about elements uh, near these, uh, the ones that they were looking for, and also what other people had tried, like all the chemistry that was known at the time. So they should be prepared for the practical work. So it looks from the beginning and from the outside that, okay, she left her job. She became dependent on his positions because it continued like that. As he had new jobs, she moved with him to different places in Germany. They were in Berlin at first. They went to Freiburg, to Strasbourg and to Bamberg. And every time she came with him and she collaborated, she was part of his team, so to speak, at university. But uh, when we go into the details of how this collaboration worked, we can see that it's not as simple as that. It's not like she left everything that she had, um, but she actually also got a lot out of it. And also it's interesting to see how they um, shared the work and, and what kind of contracts, so to speak, they established between them. They both, I see that they both were born in the 1890s. And they died, Walter, in 1960 and Ida in 1978. So they were a generation and a half, say, after Marie Curie, for example, that is more known, maybe more people know about her story. And not focusing on her relationship with her husband now, but just as a woman in science. Back then, we know the struggles that she faced sometimes. Nonetheless, she successfully engaged with science do you think that at the time being married to, first of all, being married, and number two, being married to also a scientist, validated a woman as a scientist? Ida was happily doing her work in science, or do you think that she also struggled and was not always taken seriously, or she needed to rely on her husband to have access to certain universities, libraries, or so? You know, how was it perceived then? 
Well, she was first when she was admitted to the she she went to the Technische Hochschule, so the engineering uh, uh, study. She was among very few women. So this was just the beginning of when they were opening for women. But it had opened, so the opportunity was there. She had uh, only for a very few years work in industry. We don't know about her her ambitions to university research, but um, actually. At that time in Germany, being married was not a benefit, uh, even if you were married to a scientist, because as a married woman, you had to step back and uh, they didn't allow uh, double income at the time. So when she married, because they started collaborating before they were married even, and then she left voluntarily, but she could not have the chance to go back to paid work in the, at least in the 1920s and 30s in, in Germany. But then, uh, so that you can see it from that perspective, that, okay, she, uh, by doing so, she uh, lost some opportunity. But on the other hand, she had other opportunities when she got married to Walter. Uh, he had a university position, he had a laboratory, he had collaborators. So through him, she got access to all of this. She was uh, also accepted as an unpaid guest researcher. So she had a formal possibility to come every day to work with the group, access to, of course, all the literature that was there and also to publish together with, with these people. In the case of Marie Curie, it was a little bit earlier, but as you know, she left her native uh, country, Poland, to have the opportunity for education. So already at that point, it was uh, different. But um, she too could work, but she had, it was only after his death that, that she got a professorship at university. And not easily, by the way. You said that in Germany, when Ida Nadak went to university, to the Technical uh, Hochschule, that they were just opening up. Do you mean that before it was just not done, that women attended those classes, or there was a rule that they were not admitted Yes, I mean, I did some comparative history on this, how when women was admitted in different countries. And um, and I think, I believe it was around 1909 that uh, at least all states in Germany had opened uh, to admit women. Before that, uh, they could be um, auditors for a period, but, but not to formally have, have the degree. Wow. So how was the workload divided between the Nodaks, for example, what did you find there? So first we, we looked at the publications, uh, many publications they, they did together and also saw each of them with others or individually. And then you get one image. Uh, you can see that he had more publications than her and you can have an idea about what they did together and what they did individually. But then we also have the laboratory notebooks, and this adds to this nuance. Then we can recognize the handwritings of Walter and of Ida, and we can see that, that it's not as simple. We can see that they are working very much together, and um, we can also see that there are some areas taken up for that is a special area for, for each of them. For Ida, for example, it was the spectroscopy that they needed to do to identify these unknown elements. Uh, but we also see that things change over time. So what started as uh, something they did very much together, the work on new elements and also an area we uh, labeled as geochemistry, it was gradually taken over by Ida. 
so it's very interesting when you go into these uh, details that it's not always what it looks like in the beginning. Although in, in their case, it seems that it's not that she was um, refused um, credit or anything like that. They were a couple who supported each other. And actually, uh, to describe their case, we use the term work unit or Arbeitgemeinschaft, as they use themselves, um, that they were always considering themselves as a work unit. And whatever they did was to protect that unit and the, the honor or the credit of the unit, not the individual people in it. So we see, for example, that um, sometimes when there were daring hypotheses to be presented, it was beneficial to the work unit that Ida presented these results because she, mm -hmm. she didn't have anything to lose uh, in terms of formal positions. And um, in other cases, uh, it was also when they were, for example, presenting in a, in a conference, they were presenting uh, both of them. And when we looked, go to the manuscripts, we see that this is actually something Ida did. But that was helping each other. Uh, so it didn't matter who did the work first. or But they were doing what they thought was best for them at the moment. When he was fully loaded with his teaching or, or things uh, related to his position, he could have help from her. In that respect, and um, yeah, and she could also present uh, more uh, daring hypotheses, as I said. Would you be interested in looking into some couples that work today, or because science has become more institutionalized, more than it used to be, so it's a little bit more impersonal, and women have easier access to careers in science. So this work unit would have a different function within the ecosystem or you know would you be interested in looking into collaborative couples in science today yes definitely ever since we started this i've been looking for couples um, when when it, it comes to into the context that i'm studying and in Norway, for example, we have the, the Moser couple who were awarded the Nobel Prize together in medicine. So uh, I, I have been thinking many times that, yes, it's really interesting to go also into to couples that are alive or more recent couples to look how now that we have all this knowledge about um, historic couples, if we can find some changes, some new aspects to the story that we can see from the present point of view and, and maybe in cases where women also have the full position and where they enter the relationship and the collaboration on, on a different term than, than they did in the past. I know that you and um, Brigitte in that volume and in your current work consider couple in a broad sense. So could you give some example, giving names or without giving names, of couples that are not the traditional husband and wife work unit? Um, yes, uh, at least we have one example of a homosexual or same-sex couple that were living together, but at that point, of course, uh, were not able to get married formally. But apart from that, most of the couples are, are married because it's from a historic period when that was the norm. Are there cases where the couple explodes, there is a divorce, or even without a divorce, you know, working together is not easy. There are ups and downs. And when you work together and you get along and you love each other, probably that boosts 
your capacity to be productive. And then when you have a fight, it's not so easy. Uh, was there enough material in the archives that you studied to see how their interaction unfolded across a number of years? Yes, there is a, an example there about a couple that uh, got divorced. It's Astrid Kleve and Hans von uh, Euler Schelpin. So this, uh, actually, they called the chapter Married for Science, Divorced for Love. Um, because it's uh, it was, uh, in that case, uh, they, they call it a strategy from, from Astrid, from the wife's side, to enter science through marriage, and which was not uncommon at all at the time. And, uh, and when they had a fruitful collaboration and, and many publications together, until the point there was tension, until he found also another woman that he married and, and, and continued to work with. But for Astrid, the divorced uh, wife, it was the end of her scientific career because uh, uh -huh. she was uh, dependent on his projects. She was preparing experiments and giving input to his projects. And when there was no such connection any longer, and she also did not have the institutional um, affiliation, that was also the, the early 20th century when it was not so common. She was actually the daughter of a, of a chemistry professor too, uh, which also helped her in the beginning. But uh, when she divorced from, from Hans, it's, uh, it was very difficult for her to establish uh, anything in science. She was trying by you doing dissemination work, translations. She was respected to a certain extent in geochemical circles, but uh, in the end she gave up on, on, on science. Is it fair to say uh, that Marie Curie, Pierre Curie are the only couple where the, the wife, the woman, is the most known, most famous between the two? Because I just cannot think of any other, right, off the top of my head. I cannot think of any other example right now either, but of course it's an exceptional case she, since he died very early and, and this was her opportunity. It's difficult to imagine that she could have such a status or so many opportunities if he was still alive when they were continuing this work. So it's a very special case. But of course, there are many couples we have um, uh, read about uh, who have uh, been uh, have received equal credit. The Nodox is one example. They also got uh, Nobel nominations uh, several times. Um, there are also other successful Nobel couples, uh, among them the, the daughter of Marie and Pierre Curie and her husband. That the wife is more uh, famous, that's, that's rare. Mm -hmm. In literature, sometimes women like the Bronte sisters started publishing with a pseudonym, with a man's name. Has that ever happened in science that you know of, that you know we see an article or an essay? Um, signed by a male and it was actually authored by a woman? Yes, I have heard about that, yes. I wonder if that was not the case with Jane Marsett. I am not sure, but uh, but I have read of cases like that, yes. They had to, to do that um, or they wanted to do that to be on the safe side, to submit it uh, under a male pseudonym. To wrap this up, I would like to ask you, uh, in all your work that started many years ago now on collaborative couples, what was the finding 
that you expected the least or that warmed up your heart, that it just said, look, I never had expected this. This is really not something that the wide public would imagine was going on behind the scenes. I was a bit surprised to to read about the Jane Marsett and her husband Alexander, where he was the one who had he is less known. I mean, he's known for many things, but not for this this book that is that she is famous for. That surprised me a lot. And but what warmed me is to see cases where where these these couples really support each other, and there are many cases like that. You know, with the Nodaks, it was such um, a special relationship that when she, uh, when Ida was receiving um, medical treatment and he was trying to reach her and didn't succeed, he, he thought she had died. And then the story goes that he died because he thought she had died. So uh, it was a little bit like a Romeo and Juliet story. And we can see that also in there when they talk about their work. It's always we. It's, it's always uh, mein Mann und ich. Uh, we did this. And uh, he was also, when she was in some controversy over, for example, uh, nuclear fission, she was in a discussion with Lisa Meitner and Otto Hahn, who were the one who, who discovered this. But she, Ida Nodak had come up with a suggestion a few years before and had been ridiculed. Then uh, her husband, Walter, he was approaching editors and other people and, uh, and said, you should cite Ida on this, that what she has done is relevant to this discussion. So these kind of things. It's good to see that in, in past times we have these examples. And like Pierre Curie, when he got a nomination for the first Nobel Prize, they got together that he wouldn't accept the nomination if she was not also included. That is definitely a positive message to bring this conversation home. I would like to thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for being there. And thank you again to Brigitte for putting us in touch. I encourage the audience to go and listen to Brigitte's interviews on this podcast on Marie Curie and on the rhetoric of science. If there is anything else you would like to say to conclude, uh, you have some time left. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. And, and, um, and this is something I have been doing with Brigitte for many years. So I would also like to acknowledge that collaboration. Thank you very much. All the links, names and details will be in the description of this video and on a podcast website. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Technoculture. Check out more episodes at technoculture-podcast.com or visit our Facebook page at Technoculture Podcast and our Twitter account, hashtag Technoculture Podcast.